Hello, everyone. Welcome to How to Read Chinese Poetry podcast. I'm Zhong Qicai, the program host. In this podcast program, my colleagues and I aim to introduce cutting-edge scholarship on Chinese poetry to a broad general audience. We will present 52 episodes covering the major poetic genres developed over China's long history. Each episode features close reading of one or more of the best-known Chinese poems, with an aim to illuminate their literary greatness and cultural significance. For all the discussed poems, Chinese texts, English translation, romanization, and brief notes are provided at our website, howtoreadchinesepoetry.com. By following the 52 episodes, listener will gain a bird's eye view of the thematic, formal, and generic evolution of Chinese poetry from antiquity to the modern era. Instruct and delight is what we wish to accomplish in each talk. Without further ado, let's begin. Today, our guest host, Dr. Samay, will present her third and the last episode entitled "A Traitor and the Murderers: The Poet Nuns Li Yue and Yu Xuanji." Let us welcome Dr. Samay. In this last episode on women in Tang poetry, I want to introduce two Taoist nuns, Li Ye and Yu Xuanji, who are well known for their literary prowess. As we saw in the last episode, literary talent was often associated with the morally questionable lifestyle of the courtesan entertainer, to the point that it might have been difficult for people to dissociate the two. The lifestyle of nuns who forswore marriage and children, by definition, also violates the barrier between inner and outer, public and private. Becoming a nun provided an avenue for women who needed to escape economic hardship, whether because of declining family fortunes or the loss of favor of a husband or patron. By the Tang, Buddhism had a large and well-established monastic system, and this system had also influenced practitioners of popular Taoism to create monasteries and convents of their own. A woman who had entered a Taoist nunnery at one point. Might be known thereafter as a nun, whether she continued to live there or not, and this was the case for both Li Ye in the eighth century and Yu Xuanji in the ninth. As with Xue Tao in the last episode, there are anecdotes concerning Li Ye's precocious poetic talent in childhood that assume negative associations with literary talent. One of these tells how she composed a poem on roses, which ended with the lines. If for a moment left unsupported by a trellis, they will tend to stray wildly in all directions. Her father concludes from these lines that she's bound to end up as a fallen woman. Again, the poetic choices of this very young poet are taken to demonstrate her fate in life. Whether these anecdotes are apocryphal or not, they demonstrate the association in the public imagination of a woman's talent with her morally questionable fate. Li Ye first demonstrated her literary talents in her independent life as a Taoist nun. Then, later in life, was twice selected to serve at the imperial court. 
In her case, induction into imperial service constituted a recognition of her already well-established talents. In the palace, the literary woman could pursue her very public art for the benefit of the most illustrious male patron, the emperor himself, while properly secluded from the public eye by virtue of having been accepted into the imperial household. In this way, Li Ye's prestige and talent could be co-opted to benefit the emperor and his court, while being brought firmly under familial, and in this case, imperial control. Literary women in the palace had a history dating back at least to the Han, when Ban Zhao served as tutor to the Empress Deng and canonized her instructions for younger women in her Lessons for Women. Despite the popularity of Ban Zhao's and other texts governing women's behavior, by the Tang Dynasty, the atmosphere of the court itself had changed. The Tang emperors were much more cosmopolitan than their Han predecessors, welcoming the performance of songs and dances from what was then known as the West, Central Asia, and generally participating in and encouraging the culture of poetic patronage and circulation that made the Tang the golden age of the Shi or lyric poem. The Emperor Xuanzong, in his enthusiasm for the popular new music that was entering China from Central Asia during the Tang, maintained a special official music conservatory known as the Jiaofang, or Entertainment Bureau, where some especially talented female entertainers served as instructors. It was into this rich cultural atmosphere that Li Ye was invited to contribute her poetic talents. We don't know exactly what Li Ye's position at court was, but we do know how it ended. In 783, during the reign of Emperor Dezong, the rebel Zhu Ci arose and briefly took control of the capital. During the brief time that Zhu Ci was in power, Li Ye wrote a poem addressed to him that was so positive in tone it was considered treasonous when the young emperor returned and reestablished control of the capital. Li Ye was removed from the palace and beaten to death with a club. Her poem was read as evidence of her lack of loyalty to the throne. Unfortunately, the poem was considered too treasonous to be preserved by contemporary historians, so we can't evaluate the evidence against her. But Li Ye's death demonstrates the precarious nature of a court position. To have shown adequate loyalty to Emperor Zizong, after all, would certainly have meant placing her own life in jeopardy under the rebel Zhuzi. One of Li Ye's best regarded poems tells us something about the level of poetic skill she had attained and also offers some glimpses into the cultural practices of writing poetry in the Tang. The poem has the long title, Attending Xiao Shuzi while listening to the zither, the topic assigned to me was Song on the Flowing Springs near the Three Gorges. Notice how very specific this title is and how full of information. It situates the poem specifically in terms of the social context in which it was composed. This is a natural outworking of the social character of the practice of writing poetry. Through the title, the poem can be read as a record of a specific moment and a specific occasion complete with a cast of characters. In this case, the title tells us that Li Ye is in attendance on a man. Together, they're listening to a musical performance. At the same time, presumably all members of the party have been assigned topics to which they are to compose poems. Her charge is to write a poem based on the famous zither piece she's listening to. Note that the figure in the poem who's called Zhong Rong near the end and is listening to the piece 
refers to Ruan Xian, accomplished zither player and the actual composer of the piece. He's nephew of Ruan Ji, one of the seven sages of the bamboo grove. Listen now to the poem. Attending Xiao Shuzi while listening to the zither, the topic assigned to me was Song on the Flowing Springs near the Three Gorges. My home once lay among the clouds of Mount Wu. I would often hear the flowing springs of that mountain. The jade zither gradually reaches the heights of desolation, just like what I used to hear in my dreams. The Three Gorges are far off, several thousand miles. Yet all at once they flow into these lonely inner chambers. Huge rocks, tumbling cliffs flow from these playing fingers. Flying rapids, running waves arise from the strings. At first, it seems to be the angry sound of storm and thunder. Then again, sobbing moans as if unable to flow. Swirling whirlpools, eddying rapids, as if expending their last. And now again, dripping on smooth sand. I remember of old when Ranji composed this tune, even Zhongrong could not hear it enough. Play it once to the end, then play it again. I wish we could make these flowing springs go on forever. To answer the challenge of composing on this topic, Li Ye calls upon the breadth of her own musical ability. She was a zither player herself. Her poem captures the drama and energy of the zither playing, as well as the power of the natural scene that inspired the original piece. Line one references Mount Wu. My home once lay among the clouds of Mount Wu. Some sources suggest that this implies that Li Ye actually grew up in the region where she would have often heard the flowing springs of that mountain. However, no evidence places her childhood there. More likely, she is identifying in this line with the goddess of Mount Wu, made famous in a long Han Dynasty poem that details her sexual encounter with the king of Chu in a dream. And as such, the poem demonstrates some degree of self-consciousness concerning her position as a courtesan. At the same time, Li Ye seems to relate herself with the figure of Zhongrong in the poem. Like him, she's an accomplished musician who can't get enough of listening to this piece. And she ends the poem, by wishing that the piece would go on forever. The poem is well known for how well it captures the power and drama of its musical subject. One can almost hear the notes tumbling, flying, and running over rocks and cliffs, and see the musician's fingers flying as he creates the impression of rapids and waves, capturing the anger of thunderstorms, the sobbing of water trapped in pools, and finally at the point of exhaustion as the music comes to an end, the dripping of water on sand. The existence of poems like this shows the extent to which during the Tang, literary women like Li Ye were participating in gatherings with men as equals. Other anecdotes about Li Ye highlight the role of clever lighthearted banter on these occasions, even to the point of body joking about bodily functions, almost as though she were one of the guys. And indeed a late eighth century critic, Gao Zhongwu, associated Li Li's poetic talent with what he called her masculine personality. Since her expressions and air are masculine, he wrote, her poetry is also unrestrained. 
To participate fully in the masculine world of poetry and to gain its accolades, he implies, she has on some level adopted a masculine posture toward the world, one that recognizes her poetic and erotic powers and is not content to hide them in characteristically feminine modesty or confine them to established feminine themes like love and abandonment. Gao Zhongwu goes on to describe one of Li Ye's five character lines as among the finest in Chinese poetry. And this is high praise indeed for a female poet and demonstrates how far talent could take a woman who was willing to cross the public-private divide. Less than a century after Li Ye's death, there lived a Taoist nun by the name of Yu Shenji. She's perhaps best known as subject of a popular tale of how she ended up being executed for murder. As the story goes, one day Yu Shenji is hosting a gathering in her home. One of her male guests goes to relieve himself in the courtyard behind her house. He notices some flies gathering in a particular spot, and when he looks more closely, sees what look like bloodstains. There's a smell. The guest leaves and tells his servant about the smell. The servant confides in his brother, a member of the police, and who also apparently happens to bear a grudge against Yu Xuanji for some reason. He gathers a group of officers with shovels and spades, returns to Yu Xuanji's yard, and unearths a corpse. When she's taken before the authorities, Yu Xuanji confesses to murdering her maid, Lu Chao, and burying her in the garden. Some months later, still in her 20s, she's executed. This story captured the public imagination. Yu Xuanji, you see, was a famous poetess. Like Xu Tao, her reputation also benefited from her association with a famous poet of the late Tang, Wen Tingyun, of whom she was a sometime companion. As a young woman, Yu Xuanji had first taken the path of becoming a concubine. She entered the house of a high government official, the censor Li Yi. But Li Yi's wife became jealous of her and the relationship ended. Subsequently, she expresses her complaint at her treatment in a poem alternately titled To the Neighbor Girl or To Secretary Li Yi. To the Neighbor Girl or To Secretary Li Yi. Shy of the sun, I block it with silken sleeve. Spring worries, too lazy to rise for my toilet. Priceless jewels are easily attained, but a man with a heart is hard to find. Onto the pillow, tears fall unseen. Amidst flowers, a heart secretly breaks. When I could watch Song Yu, what use to regret Wang Chang. Song Yu and Wang Chang in the final couplet both stand for attractive men. Song Yu was the romantic protagonist of a pre-Chin long poem attributed to him. He successfully maintained his distance from a great beauty who watched him for three years from over a wall. Anyone who would inspire such dogged pursuit by a great beauty at that must be an extraordinary catch indeed. The implication of the last two lines is that one should not expend too many tears on an ordinary if attractive man when one has the potential to woo an extraordinary one. With these references, Yu Xuanji is deprecating her former lover and exhorting both herself and the unnamed neighbor girl 
not to waste time pining after someone who's not worth the trouble. After being cast off by Li Yi, and while still in only her late teens, Yu Xuanji took up the life of a Taoist nun and went to live in a convent. As a former concubine, her only other choice may have been to become a lower level concubine in a large household or a courtesan. And in fact, many Taoist nuns were treated as de facto courtesans. They were sought after by men for their intellectual and literary companionship and enjoyed a level of social and sexual freedom that made them morally suspect in the eyes of many. The 10th century writer Huang Fu Mei describes Yu Xuanji's lifestyle as follows in his likely fictionalized account of her life in Sanshui Xiaobu. And I'm reading from Jean Kelly's translation of that story here. Her verses describing the delights of love were widely known among the literati. She herself was by nature as frail as the orchid and of a free disposition. She had numerous amorous attachments with the young gallants of the capital who would compete with one another to win her favor. Some would visit her bringing wine and she would often sing verses to the accompaniment of the lute. Knowing something of Yuzhenji's background and lifestyle, let's return to our true crime story. When we left her, Yuzhenji had just been arrested for murder. The full story, again, according to the at least partly fictionalized account in Sanshui Xiaodu, goes back some months before her arrest when Yuzhenji had left her maid Lu Chao at home while she attended a social gathering nearby. She instructed Lu Chao to tell any visitors who came by where she was, perhaps hoping they would come to join her. When she returned from her gathering, Lu Chao told her that a man had indeed stopped by, but then left on hearing she was not in. Suspecting her maid of having invited this person inside behind her back, Lu Xuanji relentlessly questioned Lu Chao, then stripped her and proceeded to beat her to death. Interestingly, there are several indications in the story that Yu Xuanji was still viewed with sympathy by both her contemporaries and posterity, despite her association with the murder. The suggestion that the person who initiated the investigation had a grudge against her for refusing to lend him money casts the instruments of justice in the case in a negative light. Further, we're told in court circles, there were many who spoke on her behalf. The city authorities reported the case to the emperor in the autumn, nevertheless, she was executed. The implication is either that the charges against her were trumped up or that because of her talent and recognition, she might've been deserving of mercy or special treatment. This sympathetic view of Yu Xuanji reflects the ambivalence with which the culture of the time regarded a woman of talent. She was at once to be admired and to be suspected. The association of literary talent with public availability made literary women prone to social censure, even as we see here, while enjoying the widespread admiration. At the same time, her talent and abilities sometimes earned her special consideration. Yu Xuanji was not unconscious of the difficulty posed by being an intellectual literary woman. In one of her most famous poems, she happens to pass the place where the names of those who have successfully passed the latest civil service examinations are being written on the wall in calligraphy. And the silver hooks of line two of the poem refer to calligraphy strokes. 
Visiting the South Tower of Chongzhen Monastery, I see the names of successful examination candidates being written on the wall. Cloudy peaks fill my sight, a fine spring day. Row by row, the silver hooks appear from under their fingers. I hate these silken garments that hide the lines of my verse and look up with vain envy at the names on the list. The poem's title situates the speaker at Chongzhen Monastery, a tall building in Chang'an where crowds would gather to see the names of the successful examination candidates posted. One can almost feel Yu Xuanji's longing as she sees one name after another written in fine calligraphy for all to see, knowing hers can never appear there. Yu Xuanji is well aware of her abilities and recognizes that were it not for her gender, she would have had no difficulty competing with her male contemporaries. This poem is one of Yu Xuanji's most well-known, probably because of the depth of longing it expresses so succinctly and effectively. I hate these silken garments that I have to wear as a woman and that hide the lines of my verse. She seems here to identify so strongly with her literary talent that she feels the trappings of her gender, including her feminine attire, cover her talent like a garment. I look up with vain envy at the names on the list, she says, knowing that some of them are probably not as talented poets as she is. In conclusion, in these three episodes, we've seen that despite their central role in literary and social life, the lives of literary women in the Tang were precarious and complex. On the one hand, these talented women succeeded in crossing the public-private divide and putting their talents to use. They enjoyed a degree of social freedom and influence that was not available to their more conventional and properly secluded sisters. Lower-class women placed into the entertainment industry could achieve a lifestyle and influence far beyond their birth. Courtesans like Xue Tao and Li Ye were more than a merely decorative presence in the most prestigious male gatherings. They were active participants in the give and take of poetic production. On the other hand, a courtesan was always at the mercy of others. If she obtained a powerful patron, that patron could easily dismiss her. And women's very ability to take part in public life made them a threat, potentially even to the well-being of the imperial court and the nation. Their very influence made them subject to suspicion and often ended in their death. Women like Shangguan Wanar and to a lesser extent Li Ye could rise to positions of great influence, but they could never be masters of their own fates, although admittedly Empress Wu was an exception. It's only thanks to this level of freedom, though, that any examples of women's writing at all have come down to us from the tongue. The poems we do have give us a window into the lives and aspirations of some very remarkable personalities. It will be quite some time before women of more respectable classes will begin to produce, circulate, and collect their writing without fear of being stigmatized. When they did, they were standing on the shoulders of these women, who by virtue of their position outside the inner quarters, and through their relationships and poetic exchanges with the literary figures of their time, demonstrated the intellectual and literary abilities of women and laid the foundation for the acceptance of those abilities in the culture as a whole. Well, that's it for this episode. And I hope you've enjoyed this little window into the lives and works of these talented women of the time.
Let us thank Dr. Samay for such a stimulating talk. This talk concludes her topic on women and poetry in the Tang Dynasty. To learn more about this topic from Dr. Samay, you may read her chapter in How to Read Chinese Poetry: A Guided Anthology. Next Tuesday, we'll present Topic Twelve: The Sounds of Tang Poetry. This topic is a special presentation of video episodes to be broadcast on YouTube and the Chinese video platform Bilibili. We look forward to welcoming you to this tool platform next Tuesday. I hope you enjoyed today's talk. Let us relax and listen to a reading of the poems in Mandarin by Zhao Wenxuan. 从萧叔子听弹琴赋，得三峡流泉歌。李野。妾家本住巫山云，巫山流泉常自闻。欲琴弹出转辽颂，只使当时。梦里听，三峡迢迢几千里，一时流入幽归里。巨石崩崖只下生，飞泉走浪弦中起，出一愤怒。寒雷风，又似呜咽流不通。回湍曲赖是将尽，石腹低立平沙中。一息软弓为此曲。能令众容听不足，一弹既罢复一弹，愿作流泉镇相续。赠灵雨，于玄机。休日遮罗袖。愁春懒起妆，一求无价宝，难得有新郎。枕上前垂泪，花间暗断肠，自能。窥宋玉，何必恨王昌？由崇祯观南楼笃星极地题名处，于玄机。云风满目放春晴，粒粒银钩指下生。自恨罗衣掩诗句。
举头空羡，榜中名。”